Good morning, everyone. Pastor's sermon this morning is uh, still under the category of Epiphany, and the sermon text is found in the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 31 through 35. And behold, there shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Amen. Well, we focused last week, especially in regards to Christ's appearance, that he came to solve the problem of sin. In Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That is, the righteousness of God appears apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Uh, today I want to bring a sermon in light of that little phrase there, the prophets bear witness to it. And what that means in relationship to Christ's manifestation at Advent, the New Testament is very concerned that we regard, that we understand that there is a connection with Christ coming to what preceded it. We should not look at the scriptures ever as the New Testament isolated from the old or competing with the old or the old competing with the new. That is not how we should learn Christ. God has been revealing himself and his eternal plan to save his people from their sin from the very beginning of Scripture, which we see as Genesis. All the way through Revelation, we should understand this as one unified word from God. We should not see these as competing testaments. If we ever do, we will miss the thread. We will miss the continuity of what God has planned in eternity and what he has unfolded remarkably in his word spanning over 1,500 years written by over 40, prof, 40 authors, what he and only he could have done in doing this, and we'll miss it if we miss out what is said in the Old Testament. In Romans 1, 1 through 3, Paul references, uh, according to uh, his estimation, what is the most important news ever to come to mankind, that this is God's news concerning his son, but that news is connected to what God had foretold through the prophets. Paul, he says, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in Holy Scripture, concerning his son who was descended from David, another Old Testament important reference according to the flesh. Now, we need to distinguish between the two testaments. There's important things we need to distinguish, but we must never separate them. Indeed, our faith will struggle. It will be weaker. It will maybe not even be true saving faith if we separate the two. 
And I want to consider just three Old Testament texts in brief this morning. We're not going to go into any deep dive into these texts, but three prophecies that concern the advent of Christ, the appearing of Christ, as we would say, in his birth. The first is that a virgin shall conceive, Isaiah 7, 14. We make the most extraordinary claims as Christians. Sometimes I don't think that we recognize altogether what extraordinary claims we make. Our two central holidays, if I could put them in the big picture of Advent and Holy Week, Christmas, Easter, Good Friday, and so forth, demonstrate that if there is no creator, the, the, let me say it this way, they demonstrate the impossibility of our faith if there is no creator God. They, they actually, in a, especially a secularist so-called scientific age, really paint a big target on the chest of Christians. Look at us over here, what we believe. We believe that God gave his son, born of a virgin, that's impossible, to redeem man from their sins. And in doing that, God sent his son to die on a cross, the most shameful and humiliating death known to man, and then raise him from the dead. This is, all, this is just the surface of the impossibilities that we are saying we believe to a world of unbelievers, scoffers, and so on. And this is exactly what we believe, with no apologies, I should hope, among us. We believe in the impossible, humanly speaking. I hope you believe that. We believe in what is impossible with man. This is the basis for our faith. This is the hope of glory for us. Every Christmas, we gather together and we will sing about a birth that transpired. Actually, what we should maybe sing about is the conception, the virgin conception of our Lord. And we rejoice over it. And we receive it as God's people as a historical fact. What could be more remarkable, more a demonstration of God's existence and power and glory than what the angel says would happen to Mary in Luke 131, the text that Brother Jim read. And Mary said to the angel after hearing this news that the Son of the Most High will be born in you, as it were. The, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and you will conceive a son. And she says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? I want us to notice that the virgin birth was just as unbelievable to Mary and to this day and age that it came, the news of it, as it is to you and I. This is an impossibility. But the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born, that is the conceived child, will be called holy, the Son of God. Speaking to Christians this morning, can we, through the examination of these things, merely come to a rational belief? You know, many people believe that if we just 
convince people through all the rational facts. I believe we ought to lay out rational facts and arguments and historical truths correspond, scientific truths corresponds with these truths. But if we believe that we can just convince people logically and rationally that these things happened, I think that we misunderstand what we are seeing here. If we are here believing in the truth that the Son of God was conceived in the virgin's womb by the Holy Spirit, and we've come to some kind of rational understanding that that's what has brought us to faith, we miss that this is also, meaning your faith is also a part of God's impossible works that he's done. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But the problem is, is that we're all sinners and by nature we are children of wrath and we are not having a disposition or the ability, Jesus said, to come to him. And so when we read these things and we hear these things and you have faith that this is true, part of us as we come to this season, should be all up in arms with worship because God has brought this faith to us by his mercy. We do not believe impossible things because it was just innate in us to believe them, is what I want to say. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. And this was a word that was promised beforehand by the prophets and have come to pass. But for us this morning, I want us to hear the words of God anew. I want us to hear them afresh. I want us to revel in the impossibility of what's happening. I want us to say, only God could have done this. And have that encourage our faith. And have us grounded against the world of unbelief against the temptations that we will be faced with in this season even. The virgin birth and all that entails it, the incarnation and all of these things, they don't stand alone. It's hard to believe that a virgin could conceive. I told my kids, I said, do you know what a virgin is? And they said, no. And I said, let me just summarize this. It's impossible for a virgin to have a child. <laughs> Very simply. It's just as impossible today as it was back then. Young people, it is impossible that a virgin be with child. And that's what we believe. We believe in this impossibility. We believe the word of God that has taught us this. But it's more amazing than that. Because this word that a virgin would conceive is actually foretold. We read in this story... In this narrative account in Luke 1, that first here, Gabriel gave this news before it ever happened. Now, that's, Im that's important. If, if somebody were to come to me today and tell me what's going to happen to me in nine months from now, and it happened, or just a few weeks, we don't know exactly when this came upon her, but, but if this happened exactly like he said, this impossible thing happened exactly like he said, that would be remarkable, and we would... Really, our faith would be beholden to that person. We would say, okay, that is a truth teller. This Gabriel told the truth. It took place exactly like he said. But that is not the most remarkable thing about this foretelling. Because as we ought to know, 700 years 
before Gabriel gave that message, perhaps more than that, Isaiah gave that same message. In Isaiah 7:14, the prophet said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This promise is given to the house of David and comes in the midst of a passage that condemns God's people for their unbelief and for their trusting in uh, different kings and different princes to help them and not their own God, not their covenant God. But this sign is a signification from God that he's giving that will give hope that he has not abandoned his people. This would work out for the mercy of those who belong to him and for the judgment of unbelievers, even in the context of the promise. But this promise comes, and I want us to just dwell on this matter a little bit, 700 years before we believe it took place in history. Beloved, that is impossible. You think of what has to happen for one thing to go right in your day. (laughs) as you planned it to happen. How hard is it to actually have a day go according to your plans? You try to make an appointment on time, (laughs) and you've got traffic, you've got kapa traffic in your way. And here, we see God's appointment, his word from his prophet coming true 700 years later. In the most impossible circumstances, God's word was true. Matthew 1, 18 through 23, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is a historical accounting of Jesus' birth. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, before they knew each other sexually, Jesus was found to be with child, or she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hear this then this morning. God foretold something impossible, that something impossible would happen 700 years prior to it happening. God has visited us clearly through his son, and if he had not been so great, too great for us to comprehend, in fact, this word, we may have room to doubt. You hear what I'm saying there? The impossibility, if the virgin had conceived, let's say that there was no word from the apostle or from the prophet 700 years before, and we have the New Testament standing alone, and we have this record The virgin conceives and bears a son. I would say we would have something that would be impossible for us to believe if it stood alone. Yes, God may give us faith to believe it, 
But here he has done more than that. He's given us more testimony. He has said, here's something so impossible to have happen. And to show that I'm the one who's done it, I'm going to prophesy that it's going to happen 700 years before it happens. You see, what the scriptures do is they paint a picture of a God who is true. A God who is God. A God who, apart from him, none of this could take place. But because he's true, because he exists, because he is God, because he stacks impossibilities on top of impossibilities, and they unfold just as he says they will, we can trust him. Our faith ought to rejoice in these things then, and they do, I hope. It does. And the holy appearing of Christ, the holy. You ever think about what that word means? There's nothing like this appearance. There's nothing like his birth. There's no one like him, in a sense. He is unique in God's purposes. Faith that entrusts our whole soul and body to God. Faith that won't fear what man does to us. Faith that will not lead us to being ashamed when we bear our cross daily. Faith that humbles ourselves because this God has promised to exalt the humble in due time. Faith that loves the truth, rejoices in the truth, walks in the truth. Faith that sees things as God reveals them. That's why he's given us this word. Second, Christ's everlasting reign, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Now, it's strange that I would bring up perhaps... Christ's everlasting reign, when we talk about Christ's appearing, we're talking about his appearing, his birth, his advent, his first advent. But here's something to keep in in your mind as we talk about Christ's appearing, this idea of epiphany. Even when thinking about Christ's appearing at advent, Christ's appearing encompasses more than his birth. The things we considered last week, deliverance from sin and all of those aspects of it, the defeat of Satan, etc., They don't rely merely on the birth of Christ. They rely on the birth of Christ, his virgin conception. They rely on his sinlessness, his his win over Satan in the desert, his fulfilling of the will of God, his obedience to the will of God in every point, though he was tempted like us, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand. This is the appearing. We cannot separate any aspect of Christ's appearing. We do so for our edification, for our instruction. Focus in on his birth. We focus in on his death and his resurrection. We focus in on his life, what we're going through in the Gospels right now. But we can't separate any of them, absolutely, from the one man and one life that he lived one of the most important advent prophesies of his eternal reign isaiah 9 6 and 7 for to us a child is born to us a son is given and here's what i want us to see that this child who would be born and this son given what it says following is true of him as a child born a son given Everything that follows in this text pertains to this son, this child born. 
The government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the first thing that's said about him at his birth. As this child born, the son given, that the government shall be upon his shoulder. That means he is the ruler of it. The shoulder is where the burden rests. The authority is on him to carry it. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are titles due him at his birth. And yes, throughout his life. And then it says this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Think of that. Do you think about Jesus in this Advent season in those terms? The government resting on his shoulder? Most of us can't stand the government. I shouldn't say that. (laughs) Is that permissible to say? We don't like what the government is doing these days. We don't like the imposition that the government keeps getting bigger and bigger and more imposing on the rights of the people, right? But the Bible says that this child born would have the government rest on his shoulders. And it would be an increasing government with no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Again, time is held in account here from this time forth and forevermore. When? What time? When does that start? In the millennial kingdom? I would argue no. This has to do with this time beginning at his advent. When he comes to earth in the conception, in the womb of the virgin, he is Lord. And his kingdom will increase. There's a close connection with the language here of this prophecy of Isaiah and a vision of a pagan king. You know Nebuchadnezzar's vision. I've mentioned it. But that vision vision is very important for this same theme of this everlasting kingdom. Of course, we could go back to the Davidic promise in 2 Samuel 7, or 1 Samuel 7, but we don't go there right now. I I want us, for time's sake, to see that this vision Nebuchadnezzar has, has these four great kingdoms set up. And there's a stone that's cut out of the mountain without hands. Now, that is not anything in the vision. It's Conceivably, conceivably a small stone, nothing to really pay attention for. It's somewhat obscure. It's a stone cut out of the mountain without hands, but as it starts rolling down, and here's the, the picture, it starts gaining in size. It's getting bigger and bigger, bigger until it crushes this vision of this fourth kingdom of man, and it just starts growing. This stone starts growing. Now, stones don't grow. We're we're to see something that God is giving here for our benefit. But this stone grows so large that it incorporates all of the kingdoms of men in it. And it's the only remaining kingdom. And it says, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it shall stand forever. Daniel 2.44. That's exactly the kind of language that Isaiah uses of this kingdom that will be the child's kingdom, the son's kingdom. It's the exactly kind of language we could go throughout several texts in the Old Testament, but it is exactly the same kind of language we see 
told by Gabriel to Mary in Luke 1, 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. We often sing about Jesus being Lord at his birth. And so he was, but do you hear the words of Scripture as they are given? Do you hear them? Hear them anew. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Lord there does not mean some lowly ruler. Curios. He is Lord at his birth. He is Lord in that he is the Holy One conceived in the womb of of the virgin he is lord just as the prophets said he would be he was lord at his birth because of who he was but every knee will bow to him because of what he's done and these are not separate statements they ought to be taken together philippians 2 6 through 11 says though he was in the form of god That is the exact form of God is what that means. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not have to take it for himself. It was him, his already. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. For he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's not the name Jesus necessarily that every tongue confesses. It's the name Lord. I really believe that's how we ought to understand this. Jesus is Lord is the confession. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that to the glory of God the Father. But if we're honest, if we're as honest as Scripture, we would say what the author of Hebrews says, that although the Scriptures say that everything is under his feet, we do not see everything under his feet. And even, and we'll look next week in more detail at this, but Even at his birth, we certainly don't see everything under his feet, do we? Jesus is born, Herod is jealous, and all the two-year-old boys and under are slaughtered in the region of Bethlehem. Jesus is ruling. He's the ruler of all things. What do we make of that? The author of Hebrews says at present, Hebrews 2, 8, and 9, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. 
Who do we see? What do we see? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It's hard for us to remember that this same Jesus rules even now at the right hand of God, very much like the early church, very much like even Mary. Imagine Mary seeing her son crucified as the answer for sin, as this is the Lord of all and he's being humbled. You see, it's not new for Christians to look out on this world and say, but we don't see him ruling. Is he? Is he ruling now? We look at our society and we see drag queen story hour. That's an evil that we would never have imagined 15 years ago. 15 years ago. And you can't even say anything in the public square lest the media and the popular culture ravish you, dox you, call you an enemy of society. We're sacrificing our children still to alter of pleasure with abortion, and now we're giving them over to sexual licentiousness at the youngest of ages. We are dooming them in our society. And we look out as Christians and we say, who is Lord? And I hope that you hear this word this morning. We sing about this, that Jesus is Lord at his birth. We sing that every, we believe that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord now? In the face of this sinful and crooked generation, is he Lord? You know, I, I've preached before and I believe Jesus, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, is seated above all principalities, all powers. He has all authority on heaven and earth now. You sing about it. Do you believe it? This is what I mean about the impossibility of our faith. Faith sees further than what our eyes can see in this world. It sees further than those black and white letters on the pages on your computer screen or your newspaper, if you still read those. It trusts in the word of God. The increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. The end of America is not the end of the increase of Christ's kingdom. I want to encourage you if the end of America comes in our lifetime. Christ is Lord. The gospel is going to go forth until God's appointed time that the last of his people are saved on this earth. The gates of hell will not prevail against this Lord. I said last week, the devil has been defeated by him. Do we believe it? Well, he's given us not only this truth from the narrative of the birth of Christ, but he's also prophesied that it is so. He's also demonstrated that it's so, by the way, in his resurrection. Christ is Lord. I want to just read this last text and we'll go to the last point. Hebrews 1.8, believe the word of the Father about the Son, but of the Son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is the Father speaking of the Son. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
I hope tonight as we're singing song, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come, we sing it with a certain emphasis that you've heard the word of God and you believe that Jesus is Lord. Now, third, a ruler from Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. I'll spend a little time on this text next week, but I want us to look at that phrase at the very end, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is a good translation of the language as I understand it, one that demonstrates that the ruler is to be born in Bethlehem, that this person, that's who it's describing, a human being, would have a past so old that it would not have a definite beginning. That's what the, t- the phrase means, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There's no definite beginning in the Hebrew, which is why I think probably the NASB, the King James, is a better understanding, a better translation when it says his goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Now, days of eternity, in our thinking, is what does that mean? Days of eternity. We use days to mark time. Eternity is no time. But that's sort of the way the language comes across. This person who will come, this human king who will come, which is the force of the language, will have no beginning. The text on its own is an impossibility. The prophecy on its own, the words on its own, seem to be impossible, incomprehensible to man. What does days of eternity mean? How can someone come forth from Bethlehem, a human being who also has no beginning, a ruler? What are we reading here? And I believe what we are reading here is the most amazing miracle in all of Scripture. It's the most, if we could talk, the most impossible thing that has ever occurred. I truly believe this. We're talking, this, this prophecy is talking about the incarnation. What do we mean by that phrase, the incarnation? We mean what John 1.1 says, what we read together. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the proper rendering of the Greek. That means this word is the personified. This is a person, Logos. And this person was with God and was God. Yet, but this person goes out from God because through the Logos, everything that was made was made. So this person is in the beginning with God. The only thing that was in the beginning with God was God. <laughs> this is what it's saying. And yet, there's a distinguished personality here that's being described. And the possibility of what's being described in this prophecy, this ancient person who has no beginning, steps into time. And the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us and dwelt among us. You see, what we are celebrating at Christmas is not merely that a virgin would conceive. That's impossible, humanly speaking. Not merely that an earthly ruler would come to bring us peace. That seems impossible. 
But the virgin would conceive someone who already exists. The language of Isaiah 9, 6, did you catch that? It's the son that is given, not born. The language is so amazing. The child is born. The son is given. There is something happening which no human mind can comprehend in what we believe about this holiday. What is central to our faith? God, the eternal God. Instrumental in creating everything that was made. Humbled himself. We read it in Philippians 2. And became like us. Became truly man. Having a soul and a body. Just like us. And that's what's being foretold here in Micah 5 too. Once again, this word comes to us 700 years before its fulfillment. We're celebrating this Advent. We are celebrating impossibilities stacked on top of impossibilities, unless, of course, the God of Scripture is the true God, the Creator God. Unless, of course, what Gabriel said there in chapter 1 of Luke, nothing will be impossible with God. You see, the whole thing hangs upon God being God. We, the, I will say one of the most encouraging truths of my faith as a Christian is that the scriptures would make no sense coming from a man's point of view. We create things that make sense to us. <laughs> that, that we can wrap our minds around and we can see strength unfold. You know, like nowadays, I really see these Marvel and the superhero stuff as mankind sort of trying to make deities again. Aren't they? Trying to admire something. But we make them very comprehensible, very understandable. Well, this person has a weakness here and this person... God is revealing himself to us in a way that for our finite brains, we cannot comprehend him, which is exactly what we would understand God to be if there is a God. You see, it's because of the impossibility of these circumstances that I think actually encourages our faith that God is true, that he is the one who has revealed himself in Scripture. And what we are celebrating is not in vain. This is what God would do. And only God would do. This is only possible for God, not for man. Therefore, the glory only comes to God in the end, not for man. The end is that our joy terminates in the Lord with all of these truths. You see, the scriptures talk about our salvation as being impossible as well. 
No man can come to me. Can is able unless the Father draws him. Can a leopard change its spots? An Ethiopian its skin? How can you that are so accustomed to doing evil change? Our righteousness is as filthy rags, and yet the Bible says sin cannot even enter into God's presence. And that's what the Bible says we are saved unto. Dwelling with God. I will be their people and they will be, I will be their God and they will be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of them. May we see in Christ's appearance that the only hope for our salvation is grounded in the truth of God's word. He has foretold what was impossible to foretell. He has done what is impossible to do. And the Bible says this happened so that he, Jesus, would save his people from their sins, which is impossible for us to do. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. <laughs> so I pray that you're encouraged by his word. His word is true. And my prayer in preaching this service this week is that we would be sanctified just as Jesus prayed. Sanctify them by your word. Set them apart as a holy people to yourself by your word. Your word is true. So those who have ears to hear, hear the word of God. 